Hello and welcome to the Three Musketeers podcast. Introducing the brothers behind it, Hamid and Hissam Amiri. Join them on their journey as they discuss unconventional topics from different perspectives. Real experience with key speakers around the world. Welcome back to another episode with Three Musketeers podcast. Uh, it's myself, Hamid, Hassam, and today we have a guest, uh, which I'm super proud, uh, Golwali. Uh, we're planning to be asking and grilling Golwali for the next hour. I think without further ado, we're going to hand over to Golwali to give us a bit of intro, but also Golwali for the audience, pronounce the correct pronunciation of the surname, because me and Hassam, we get really sometimes wound up when people mispronounce that's why we didn't say your surname uh, <laughs> oh, I see. so we want to let you well, say it properly so we, we don't mispronounce it well Hamid it's great to be with you both and thanks for having me so my name is Gulwali Pasarle which means uh, flower friend of God uh, in spring so Pasarle is basically Bahar and um, oh, okay. yeah I, I've been in the UK for the last 13 years I came here as an unaccompanied minor and at the moment, I do a lot of work around advocacy and campaigning for refugees' rights. I I, I co-founded a small uh, NGO supporting uh, refugees' inclusions and empowerments. Um, I travel across the country raising awareness. I do a lot of uh, uh, public speaking and raising basically like a refugee spokesperson. So in the last uh, in the last few days, I've done uh, lots of interviews with the media, uh, acting as a, as a refugee spokesperson, which is usually quite hard work. Um, yeah. because you, you feel sense of responsibility on your shoulder. So it's been great. I mean, I've been busy. And also, uh, in the last 10 years, I know I did my schooling here. I went to college. I did my A-levels and then went on to do my get my politics degree from Manchester University. I uh, recently finished my master's at Coventry. I mean, I told you in a few lines, but, you know, it was years of struggle and hard work. <laughs> it didn't just happen. I mean, a lot, a lot. There's a lot behind behind the scenes stuff. So it's, yeah, it's looking forward to having a, an interesting uh, conversation with you. And thank you for the opportunity um, to speak to me. Thank you. And to be fair, that's, there's a lot of stuff in there we can um, unpick because um, that timeline is very interesting. Um, I think for, for me, just to give a, a better background, myself and Gowali, we, uh, fate, we luckily met uh, in an event we'd done together and even though we went through a different journey uh, and had different paths, there was a lot of similarities mm. that we could both relate. Obviously, we're from Afghanistan, but beside those factors, there was so much that when Gowali was talking, I was nodding along and vice versa. Uh, and as you mentioned, the past few weeks has been, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot more on the media about refugees and I've been on social media uh, and obviously I know Gulwali, you are as well. Uh, and I've seen positive people talking about it, but also a lot of negative. Um, I think the word that you used, dehumanization of refugees. Mm -hmm. And I guess today, that's kind of what we want to talk about. And, you know, the whys, the hows, and break the misconception of what people assume the word refugee is to what reality is because you're you're yourself one i'm i'm one and obviously hesam myself uh, hesam here is one as well so that's kind of what we want to break and i'm going to hand over to hesam because he's um the the the, the peacemaker i'm going to be mm -hmm. i'm going to be trying to be quiet um the moderate the moderator moderator the moderator 
moderator there you go i'm glad one of us got that <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah so Golvali, do you mind like summarizing sort of your journey from afghanistan to uk um there's a book out for those people who don't know um please mm-hmm. purchase it um like plug your book, Hamid. Okay, I won't um, plug my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but we just want to know, like, because you came at a young age from Afghanistan to UK, and just the journey and the reasoning why, so people can understand it. Sure. I think firstly, I was really pleased to see you know Hassan's book. Uh, as as a fellow Afghan, I don't see many authors, so it was great. And I think you know um, we need to uh, support each other. I think Afghans are we've been learning to support each other. It's been a it's been a long. Uh, interesting experience but anyway so my journey uh, started back in 2006 um uh, in eastern afghanistan in nangarhar so because of the conflict in war which you guys are aware of and, and the, the security situation things were pretty bad um when the taliban government collapsed and they kind of were there were resurgency and there was a lot of uh, back and forth between the new government and the taliban so our life were been affected by it and we were we were kind of um, stuck between either joining the taliban becoming fighters to take revenge for our family members who were killed by U.S. forces, and there was also yeah. a feeling of, you know, working with the U.S. forces in the Afghan government against the Taliban, or you know, there was all sorts of implications. We were children. I mean, we, we didn't really understand the whole complexity of the the conflict. But uh, my family decided to send me and my brother away. He was Hazrat. He was a year or two older than me, uh, and the journey began uh, over. We went over to Pakistan, and then the the arrangement was made to be for us to be smuggled to Europe. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, really, I didn't really understood exactly how long that will take and how we're going to get there and like the whole question about what next and, you know, uh, and how this could be done and so on. But we were started before even we began the journey, we were separated by the smugglers and I did not see my brother for the next uh, 14 months. And wow. everywhere I went, I asked for him from people. I was looking for him and I wanted to actively find him. But I, I mean, I was unsuccessful, sadly. And so the journey continued. I, we, we went to Iran, from Iran. Uh, we spent some time there before um, crossing to Turkey on foot. I mean, Iran was a beautiful country. Uh, it was very different to Afghanistan because, you know, um, Afghanistan, I've only I've been to Kabul once or twice when I was a child. Uh, but uh, it was a very different country, different system. Uh, uh, but in, in a sense, it was strange, even though I had a passport, but I was fearing the police um it was it, we were in a strange land and yeah. then from there the journey continued then we we crossed the turkey after a month or so and uh, uh in turkey we, we walk a whole night to cross the the mountains it was very um hard terrain it was a difficult journey it was 15 of us i met a lot of um, other afghans you know refugees and, and people who were very supportive and kind and actually helped me and pushed me on and urged me not to give up and, and the, across the journey and so in Turkey, we spent a lot of time in uh, hidings from the police and authorities. Um, we were in like some really terrible condition, like uh, chicken coops and places where we were. You wouldn't normally put humans. The smugglers, I realized, uh, and, and the traffickers were pretty heartless people. Uh, they actually yeah. made money out of our desperations. And so the journey continued across Turkey to keep it short. I mean, the journey is long. The, the lightless sky is 120,000 words. Uh, and so I made it to Istanbul in, in trucks and, and walking for days on end and being thirsty and hungry. Um, and then Istanbul, we were kept in a basement most of the time. Uh, it was very, very hot and overcrowded by the smugglers. And the smugglers were liars. They never really told us the truth. So we started not believing them uh, after some time. And then we once made a journey uh, to Bulgaria. I was fitting to the seals of the train. And then asked to jump around a moving train. There was a lot of things I was doing for the first time. I mean, it's funny now, but actually it wasn't when I was doing the journey. 
uh, and uh, there were people who were injured. Uh, we, we got arrested anyway by the Bulgarian authorities, police, and then in prison for a few days before being deported back to Turkey. We had to literally walk back in uh, December of 2016 snow uh, to Turkey. And then sometime later, we were arrested in Istanbul in prison uh, for two weeks, then deported back to Iran. So the journey was not straightforward. It was really frustrating. Uh, you know, uh, it was it was basically like snakes and ladders. Uh, and in Iran, somehow I managed to uh, escape from the Iranian police and then make the journey back again. Third time, lucky I made it to Greece on a, on a small boat from Turkey, which was uh, designed for 20, 30 people. They put 120 of us in there. Oh, wow. uh, and it was really, really overcrowded, Hamid. And it was scary. I have never seen the sea before. You know, being an Afghan, we don't have a way to the sea. I didn't know how to swim. I was really frightened, you know. And we, we were before we on the boat ride, we were in uh, this forest jungle place for three days, uh, two days and three nights. Uh, because the boat could not arrive for some reason, and then when it did, it was just too too um, too heavy. Um, and so we were supposed to be in the sea for four hours, according to the smugglers. We ended up being in the sea for 50, 48 to almost 50 hours, and our boat broke down after like the third day, um, and water was coming in. We were trying to take the water out, and every time I see people, uh, news of people drowning or people making the journeys, they went through uh, across the English Channel. You know, it brings back memory, it resonates, and it makes me think about these people's what goes through their mind. So when our boat break down and we were certain that we were going to die, I saw deaths on many occasions, but there I was like, sure, you know, this was like, this was where our fate was that we will drown. And uh, the the concern or the thought in my head was like, my family would not know what has happened to me. Uh, my mom would live in hope that I will return home one day, but I will never return. So these things was really upsetting me. Um, and I prayed, we prayed, we all of us prayed, we, we read the Quran, whatever du'as, whatever supplication we need, we, we uh, recite it. And then... Yeah. Um, Thankfully, um, literally within minutes, if the Greek Coast Guard had not came in, came to rescue us, our boat would have capsized and we would have been, would have drowned in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, or the agency. So the Greek Coast Guard came and they came with four boats. So they hold our boats from all sides. Uh, very fortunately, very fortunate that we, and lucky we got survived and were taken to safety. And then from there, the journey continued. I mean, the local people were very kind to us. They brought us food and water. We hadn't had proper food and water for a week. And so we ate whatever and drank a lot of water. And we all got sick because our body responded in such a way. And then we were in a legal limbo with the Greek authorities because they told us we have entered their country illegally and undocumented and so on. We are somewhat criminals and we, you know, we either had to leave the country or be deported. All sorts of threats were made against us. I mean, we were, there was a... Um, out of that 120 of us, you know, there was about uh, 11 of us who were who are children. We were under 18s or even, in fact, under 16, some of us. And then from there, after two weeks in a, a Greek uh, detention facility, we were taken to a refugee camp because our health was deteriorating. The doctors and nurses intervened and they helped us to get us out of there. Uh, even though the prison was pretty good, like we, it was a children children prison or detention place. They gave yeah. us good food. We were able to take shower. They gave us clothes. I mean, this was much better than... The prisons in Iran, which was really, really terrible in Turkey as well as in Bulgaria. But still, it was a prison. Our freedom, our freedom was taken away. And so from refugee camp, we kind of ran away. And then for the first time into my journey, about nine months into my journey, I had met a smuggler in a place called Patra in Greece. And he told me that he had met my brother a few months earlier. And oh, my wow. brother was heading to the UK. Yeah. And and so this was this was a great, great news for me because I was keep seeking him. Uh, looking for him and so everywhere I went to ask agents and people and so he said to me that he was also looking for me and so the guy helped me um, to send me to Italy I mean he wanted uh, 600 euros or something like that I told him we will talk about the money later I mean I, I became very smart on the journey I learned the, the trick of the game because I used to be really you know innocent trusted everyone and then I learned you know it's not about trusting everyone you had to be you know you had to be on top of the game 
I said him money was no problem, we can discuss the money and he showed me how it's done. He took me to this fence area where every agent smuggler had its own space yeah. and put me into a lorry and then a few minutes later the police found me and I had to run for my life. I mean, they were beating people with sticks and ah, uh, and like with the police uh, thing, you know, the police, um, whatever it's called, that they used to charge Call people the with. Yeah. And so it was terrible. And then um, second time he put me on the top of a lorry engine. Uh, and luckily, I could see the border police in the army, uh, uh, but they couldn't see me. It was a very small and tiny place, very hot. And mm. um, before I knew it, the lorry was in the boat. And um, some hours later, I was in Italy. And actually, when I was in Patra, I saw people living in like in a shanty town, small tents and the roadside. People were really, really, uh, it was a miserable place, actually. Um, uh, the, the, I spent a night, a cold a night in a, in a construction building. It was cold, but at least it was clean. And so I was very fortunate to leave that place because there were people there for months and months. After about four or five hours, I was in Italy and the lorry was going so fast. I thought if I let go of my hands of what I was holding on to, I could be, you know, underneath the tires. Uh, oh, wow. I, I mean, I don't know how to describe it, describe it to you. It was a very um, scary situation. And I, somebody told me that I need to have a stone and rock in my bag because that may be useful to getting the driver's attention. If something, you know, if you are in a... To make a know, noise. Yeah. So yeah. because if you are in a, in a confined place, how are you going to make noise? So I had this rock in my bag after about two hours on the motorway. I couldn't hold on no more. The engine was getting extremely hot, uh, and um, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't really breathe, and uh, there was a lot of wind uh, underneath the lorry as well, and and I couldn't really look down. So I got his attention with the rock, and I bounced the rock a few times on the engine. After a while, the driver stopped, and he thought there was some technical issues in his truck uh, lorry. When he before even he came down, I was able to come out, and he was absolutely shocked to see me literally coming out underneath his lorry. And he just stood there on the motorway telling people, look at this guy. And I was trying to explain to him, look, they don't know. They have not seen what you have seen. So it's all right. And then he actually went away after a while. And then I was yeah. just there. I didn't know what to do. So um, this is this is you in Italy. This is me um, in Italy without my friends, without my travel companions, without an agent. Because in Greece, I had friends with me. I had travel companions. Yeah. I mean, when I was in Patra, I was with my six of my friends. Uh, and so this was just, a, uh, I was just learning. It was not a, it was not a serious attempt to get to Italy. It was just like, he was showing me how it's done. And because there were people there for months and months, you know, this was not something that I just got very lucky, actually. So I, so I didn't know what to do. Nobody told me anything because they were not expecting me, me crossing, you know? So um, I was and walking how old up and down. By the time I you got to 12. Italy? Sorry? So you, by the time you got to Italy, you were about 12 years old. I, I became 13 in Italy a few weeks later. So I was, this was in about, my October, my birthday is in October and this was in September. But actually on the journey, I forgot the sense of time. I didn't, there used to be time where I used to count days and weeks and then I realized there was no point to it. Like, what is the point of knowing what day and month and week it is? Because it doesn't make any difference. It's just like, you know, time, time becomes uh, irrelevant. So I didn't really know what day and month it was, but then now I worked it out backwards. It makes sense. And so the police, everybody was on their phone. The police came a few minutes later and I actually run towards them. And for the first time in my entire life that the police officer, there were two officers, they were really, really nice and kind, asked me, put me into the car, asked me my name, my age and nationality. We were able mm. to communicate in my broken uh, few words of English. And then they took me, before taking me to the police station, they took me uh, to a shop. They say if I was hungry. I said yes. And they got me some orange juice, I mean, some croissants and uh, some uh, sandwich. I mean, this is more than 13 years ago, but I still remember uh, such an <laughs> uh, act of kindness. It's, it's those little... Um act of kindness um that you remember so i think i think for me Gowali, what i want to do is it's it's just pause there for for a second because... so, i mean there's like yeah the story is big and long but no 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 you're right but you know what it's it's got me it's got me thinking um Good. of of questions so 
for for you know you see stuff on the news uh you know refugees making journey what you described me was you leaving your family you Mm -hmm. losing your brother in -hmm. a way not knowing where he was but you still knew you had to make the journey and this is your first time in all of those if not most of those countries yeah yeah obviously yeah i've never been to any of these countries so and i was a child i mean to be honest you know looking for my brother and also my mother and my grandmother told me that no matter how bad it gets don't come back and and the last words what they told us was stay stay with each other stick to each other and, and you know hold on each other's hands be safe and so i was like you know i what can i do i couldn't really go back you know i was in a stuck in a situation where between a hard hard place in a rock so I, I didn't know what to do i needed to find my brother and i was hoping that he's safe he survived because i was really angry with the smugglers but yeah. i mean looking at hindsight now it was a very good decision by the smuggler to separate us. I mean, thinking about it now, so many years later, because perhaps we wouldn't have seen each other suffer so much and we would have maybe given up on the journey and the, the whole uh, adventures because, um, and, and I mean, we went through so much pain. And sometimes when, and also I was able, it gave me more determination to find him, you know, so this, the, there was a more, uh, there was something in me that I like, don't let my mom's down. I had hope and faith and also I need to find my brother. I continue on the journey. Maybe if he, he was with me, I'm like, look, brother, let's give up on this whole idea. And let's just like, you know, do something. I don't know. Let's do something different. Also, maybe we would have, we would have struggled to see each other go through so much pain. And, and maybe at some stage we would have been separated anyway. Let's, for example, when I was on the, fit into the seals of the train and, and yeah. in Turkey, I was separated from my friends. And same with the lorry engine from Greece to Italy. So he couldn't fit with me there anyway. So we could have been separated at some stage uh, where we would have, I would have relied on him a lot more than, you know, I don't know how to explain. If he was with me, no, I would, no, no. You, you know. you're making a valid point, and I think it, it 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 raises the question. So, do you think, in a way, subconsciously, you separated from your brother gave you that drive to look for him? And exactly, hope, that's hope, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Day. Yes, yes. Uh, I because for 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 me and Hassan, what is interesting, I, and Gowali, what you were saying, we were nodding along the way uh, because. Again, there's relatability. Uh, we lost faith in people because um, the way we were, you know, the, the way some of the traffic handlers treated us and, and people, we were like, you, you know, well, you don't really care about us. All he cares about mm. money. Money. Getting yes, paid, yeah. yes. But there's a, what's interesting is without you realizing, you had, you had a drive to say, I'm not going to let my parents down because the last mm. thing they told me is, go and find a better life mm-hmm. but also i need to find my brother my older brother yes yeah and i i think for me and Hassan, or for us for the family very different because we were together but we knew we had to get to our final destination because of our older brother i think sure. we we felt it was a race against time and no no matter how bad it got so we were in we were in a in a barn uh for for a few days in poland i want to say mm-hmm. you could you could you could smell and know before us uh it was animals who stayed in the barn it, it, so it was a farm and we were in ju- we were in jungle when we came out of russia but you're right for us one thing and it sounds similar to you from a completely mm. different perspective it was the hope of knowing I got to push through whatever comes front of me because I got to get there. For you, it was hopefully finding your brother, which yeah, and um, finding, of course, and finding safety. And for you, you know, finding 
finding you know solutions for your brother's health exactly. and so on. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a kind of a human thing in life. We you know we got to have drive, you got to have ambition, and you got to have aim and objectives. You know, if you want to go somewhere, you can't just go like you know like it's not some sort of a holiday because there are ups and downs in the situation where you know we want to give up. For example, when I was deported to Iran, they were sending me to the Afghan border. We were heading to Nimroz, and I ran away because I thought if I go home. That'll be very yeah. nice. I'll see my family. I couldn't really care about the war implications in the conflict. But my mom will be asking me about my brother. So no matter what I tell her, she will think he's dead. So somehow this will make the situation even more worse. And then so I need to continue. I, need, I, I had to turn around. And that's what gave me. I mean, there was over 100 people. Uh, uh, we were taken back uh, towards the Afghan border. There was three of us who ran away and we managed to survive. I mean, it was a very risky thing to do. The Iranian uh, army had guns. They told us they will have to take us from one side of Iran to the other safely. And we can't even yeah. think about you know, making a mistake of uh, trying to, you know, run for, run for it. But but also, that's, to me, um, hearing that, that's putting so much pressure on a 12-year-old um, kid, in a way, exactly. because that's what you were yeah. at the time, to so, say, you know what, I mm-hmm. can't face my mum and say, by the way, I've, I've lost my brother. Um, mm-hmm. That must have been really, really scary. I mean, it was tough. Like, what do you do? Because, like, okay, on one side, there was, there was fighting going on. I had... I had a conflict situation in, in, in you know in Eastern Afghanistan and a lot of places in Afghanistan. So I thought, okay, if I go back, it's very it's very fishy because no matter what I say, my family will be suspicious of me. That you know, how could I let my my brother not be with me? And how did I let him? You know, for example, perhaps he died. I don't. I'm not telling him the truth. I'm not telling him the truth, or something had happened to him. You know, I just come back. So there's all sorts of things going through my head, and I was like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I've been honest, he was separated from me. I don't know where he is. I'm trying to you know, look for him. I ask every smuggler, every person I meet. Uh, and so that's that's all I could do. And I didn't want it, you know, more anxiety and depression and stress. So I thought, you know, the best thing would be to come around and to try to seek and find him. Okay. Um, just a quick question, because the journey is really long for you. Yes. Um, how did you get to UK? Um, okay, sure. What... So... Uh, yeah, I will. I will finish it very quickly because I was giving you a little <laughs> more details. Then you're giving so, the whole uh, book out, so I just don't want. I indeed, want people to buy so, the books. <laughs> so from Italy, I managed to uh, to make it to Paris, uh, uh, and uh, uh, after Paris, I went to um, Calais, the jungle in northern France. I have heard so many stories about this place, but it was a lot more miserable uh, than than I imagined. I was there for a month, but until I wrote the book, I thought I was there for three months. That's mm. how bad the conditions were. The, it was miserable. It was cold. We used to get arrested by the police every day. It was you know they used to harass us. Um, it was running up to lorries every night and trying to get into lorries, trying to hide in lorries in trucks. Um, I once burnt my face with chemicals in a truck. It was it was a terrible place, man. It was it was not fit for humans to be there. And in a way, that place should not exist. And um, after about a hundredth attempt, I made it to the UK and I back up a refrigerator lorry. Hundreds of attempt. Very similar one that we saw last year where 39 uh, people were uh, were dead in. Uh, so I was yeah. very, again, very lucky that uh, the driver did not put on the freezer because we were not, uh, ours was not just a truck. It was not just a, like a refrigerator, but it was behind a trailer, behind a truck. Uh, and so um, it was not just a container. So, I mean, you know, we could have lost our lives on the last leg of our journey. So I was very pleased that I married here and I was hoping to be reunited with my brother, but that was not uh, as simple. It was It was another battle, another struggle, perhaps as hard as, the journey itself, being in the asylum process and going through the bureaucracy uh, and not being believed. My age was not believed by social services. My nationality was not believed by the Home Office. There was a lot of a, a disbelief, a system where I was guilty and I had to prove myself innocent. I mean, it was it was terrible. It took me three years to challenge the age and nationality situation. It took me five years to get my refugee status. 
and I was in a legal limbo for about five years. So yeah, it was not easy. So when you got to the UK um, as a 12 year old child, mm. 13 by now, Thir- mm. 13, yeah, because you had his yeah. birthday in Italy. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> who did you stay with? So when I arrived, um, we got arrested by the police um, near London because the 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 lorry, the lorry was full of bananas. So the when he arrived at a factory and then the driver opened the door and he saw us, he closed it very quickly. So the police came. We were in a police custody for 24 hours, somewhere near Dartford. And then they took us to uh, Dover. And it really freaked me out because it was scary. I thought they were deporting me back to France. And then in Dover, they, um, uh, they that's where we claimed asylum. And uh, then I was taken to a hotel for about two weeks near there. Before that, then my age was assessed by Ken Social Services. And then from there on, I was taken to a, an, an unaccompanied minors unit where I stayed yeah. for about three months before taken to a kind of an independent living place with other asylum seekers in, in, in Gravesend in Kent. And so, yeah, I was I was being looked after. I mean, I was given food and clothes and everything, but my humanity and my, my agency and my identity was taken away. So it was a really bizarre situation where I was safe and secure, but these people are destroying my future and my life. And, and not by, you know, I, if I had let them get away with it, they would have perhaps deported me. They threatened to, to deport me twice, which was very interesting. I didn't know where they was deporting me to because they did not believe I was from Afghanistan. And secondly, I would not have the opportunity to go to school, to go to, you know, go into a foster family uh, and to have the chance and opportunities that I had if I let them get away with my age and my the whole nationality dispute situation. I think for me, there's two questions. One of them is just random. You know, you said you stayed in a hotel. Yeah. Um, so we stayed um, in a little city called Margate. Um, I have been there. Ho- yeah. I have been to Margate in Ramsgate. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was wondering if it's the same place you stayed where we stayed. Um, no, we stayed in Dover, not far. We stayed in uh, just outside the port. It was, uh, I think, it was called Harbour Hotel. Oh, okay. Yeah, because we st- we stayed in 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 a random hotel in Margate for um for a few weeks before we were um I guess it were distributed to Cardiff. Mm. You said you know, a few years before you had to prove, uh, you know, your nationality and your age. How would that make you feel, you know, to go through that process? You know, you've made that, you know, nine, ten months journey. You lost your brother along the way in the hope of get to UK, let's call it safe yes. haven. And mm-hmm. the first thing they do is question you. Um, and make you doubt who you are and what you say. Yeah, they were questioning the, the essence of my life. I mean, I made a 12-month journey. I was unwelcomed across half of the world except Italy. I mean, nobody really asked me if I, you know, I was treated very inhumanely by authorities. The smuggler treated, treated us as a commodity. And here I was expecting a lot of, you know, humanity and, and, and decency and justice and fairness. But the Home Office and Social Services was basically soul-destroying me. And I think they were, you know, if you read The Lightless Sky, which I hope you get the chance to do so, Basically, I twice um, attempted suicide. I mean, it's not something that an Afghan will talk about. Uh, it's not that it was not done out of weakness. It was done, you know. I just I had enough of life. I had I was tired that people were not believing me. I you know I was telling the truth. I was being very honest, and it was really, really, really frustrating. And I made me angry, and I was dehumanized. You know, I was demoralized. I was demotivated, and I thought there was no point to life. I felt unwelcomed, unwanted. Uh, and it was like you know, in in a some a systematic in systematic way, it was done institutionally. It was done in a way you don't see it. It was done very smartly by the authorities. You know, they were like, of course we're looking up to you, we are supporting you, but actually no, they oh, were yeah. they were they were they were taking away the very essence of my my being. I I totally understand. So yeah, you you're right. It's same one thing, but then the action is completely different than how you feel. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to 
I'm trying to imagine and I can't, you know, you, you're 13 years old, you haven't got anyone to go to with all these concerns and emotions. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, to, to, to be at the lowest that you feel like, you know what, I've had enough. I think that's the aspect that the media or people are not aware yeah. of. Yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, they think we see. come here and it's done. No, it's not. You know, you don't. This, this is the process. Well, I had to, when I was in Kent for about six months, I had to live on, I don't know, I think 50 pounds or something uh, uh, a week. And I had to, I had a lot of mental health issues. I had anxiety. I had depression. I was traumatized from the experience of my journey. There was very little help. And whenever I talk to social services and officials and people in authority, they're like, well, don't discuss this. You know, your age situation is over. It's done now. Move on and get over it. As though it was, you know, I was just joking. It was not, it was serious. If you could not believe my age and my nationality, everything else I'm saying is rubbish. Everything else I'm saying is nonsense because that, if you're not believing the, the, the kind of foundations of my life, of what my parents told me my date of birth is and everything else, then I, I know my nationality, not believing that I was an Afghan was quite insulting. Yeah. So just to put it into real world, I think most people at the age of 12 and 13 worry about going to high school while you have to worry about traveling all the way across the world alone. Exactly. Coming to a place where they say you're not who you are. Well, yeah, the the first the first adults that Gulwali saw questioned everything about him. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I'm trying to I'm trying to I mean I was seen you know, as the liar as as a suspect and that's again very insulting. It's very again dehumanizing. It's very, you know, I don't know, like it's very bad accusing somebody and suspecting somebody as a criminal. I wasn't. And I'm not. It's demoralizing. Exactly. Um, I I can't even, because f- so for me it was was slightly different because by the time I was twelve thirteen years old, I was going to to a high school, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in UK. I struggled because those those scars from the journey and I think the quote I've used the losing faith in humanity because the way you were treated. I struggled to. You know, um, when adults were trying to be nice to me, I was I thought, what is your agenda? Where in your <laughs> case, it's is the exact opposite. You you haven't got adults that trying to be nice nice to you. You got adults that are actually questioning everything about you, and that's what gets. I think that's what frustrates me when people talk about refugee and put a negative spin on it. They don't realize the consequences, the impacts, the scars that you've had to endure as a refugee to get to UK. Um, and I think uh, I think one of the questions is, obviously you came to UK uh, many years ago. Do you feel the, the perception has changed from when you, you came to UK to what it is now? To what it is now? And, and, and is it better? Is it worse? Or do you... F- what are your thoughts about that? So basically, thing has not improved. I mean, it's it's terrible. So about four or five years ago, I wrote an article for the Guardian saying things has you know has got from bad to worse, and actually it's getting worse. So almost half of young people in Kent, particularly Afghans, are age disputed. And I mean, there's also some truth in it. So when some when a young person comes and they say they're 16 or 15, they may not be. And the mm-hmm. reason they may be saying this is because when they're 18, they may end up in detention because our asylum asylum policy is such if you're not a minor. You may get deported, you may get detained, you may get, you know, destitute and whatever, a lot of things will happen to you. If the asylum policy was fair, then people might not lie. There are people who lie about their age. I'm not saying that they're not. And yeah. there are a lot of Afghans who doesn't know when they're born. You know, in Afghanistan, it's not something that people, people don't really celebrate birthdays. People don't really write down, it's just, especially if you're from and villages. And you have a different from, calendar, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. It is. Yes, I was born you know, in the Afghan calendar. I was born 1373, and then how do you translate that into the English calendar? <laughs> You're really old. You know, so yeah. it's it's a different a different world. So yes, things has uh, sadly got worse, not better. Uh, and the government, so there's, there was a data out. Uh, usually, when people are age disputing, they go through court, the court system. Uh, usually, half of these people are then accepted by the court, uh, but and then it costs a lot of money from the taxpayer. So the system we have not only the whole age dispute situation, but also just the asylum process, the hostile environment. Uh, to be honest, when I arrived, the hostile environment were not officially existed. Mm-hmm. So now the hostile environment is officially in existence since you know the David Cameron government. And um, it, it's heartbreaking. I mean, these people are coming through the boat, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's just a few thousand people. Uh, and um, these are human beings who should be showing solidarity, treating them with respect. I've been reading comments on social media. It's like, oh, these are illegals, economic migrants, sending them back, shoot them, whatever. Like people are saying extremely hurtful things. And ultimately, you know, we have a moral duty towards these people. And also Britain went and robbed Africa and a lot of countries in the Middle East of their wealth and resources. And now you know, they colonized them and told us that they were better than us. Now people are coming here. It's not a reverse colonization, but we are coming here for our safety and protection, which is our human right. It's, you know, we're not breaking any law. Uh, claiming asylum is not a, a crime. And, and it seemed like, you know, the government has made it a crime when it isn't. And so people come here because there's no legal and safer routes for them to come here. There's very few safer routes. I mean, it would have been great for you guys to claim asylum for, for Britain in Poland or in Russia or in another country. And so you guys could come here safely. And for me, you know, even though I had a brother here, I had a right under EU law as well as international law that yeah. I should have been, uh, you know, been able to say, OK, you, you could actually go to the UK to be reunited with your brother through a legal and safer uh, and civilized means. I think for me, to, to you know, the question we had, has it gone better? Clearly not. Um, of course not. Sadly. Do you think, do you think this, the social media makes it easier now for people to express their hatred views or their views of how they actually feel? Mm, that's a very good point because in the past, you know, uh, I mean, it's, uh, social media is a powerful tool for us as well to share our perspectives and grievances yeah. and concerns and worries. But at the same time, and I get a lot of, you know, there are a lot of good people in the UK. People are very generous, very kind. Majority of them are, but there's a minority of people who just are ignorant, uh, uh, lack they lack education and understanding. They're ill-informed of the international law or they don't care about the international law. So I think, you know, I've been trying to go around <laughs> educating people, raising awareness, getting people to show compassion, changing minds and hearts. It's not an easy job. I mean, they just think, you know, there's this expectation. Why don't people stay in France? Why don't people stay in other European countries? Well, they do. You know, France have 100 and, th- 100 and something thousand asylum applications last year. We only had 35,000. So Britons have a very small percentage of people uh, come here because of family reunification, because of other conditions and situations and reasons, uh, because of language and historical and cultural or so on. And people see Britain as a place of, you know, really a place of protection and equality and justice and fairness and freedom and so on. But in reality, it's it's very different, and we just we just don't want to take responsibility. Oh, we are a small nation, uh, and then we blame all our problems and and migrants. I mean, now we had with COVID nineteen, we had the highest deaths in Europe. The government is basically so that is not discussed that they blame the refugees and migrants crossing the the the, the English Channel. The whole media focuses on that instead of focusing on the failures of the government. So and with Brexit, and I mean, they always want to find somebody to scapegoat. And refugees and migrants are the perfect people to actually go after and blame them for their problems. Yeah, I mean, what you said there was interesting. They said, because I hear the comments all the time, why the UK? Um, you obviously had your own reason, because in Greece, they said your brother is in UK. He's made it yep. there. So your mission was to be with your brother. And also, yeah. I, of course, I was unwelcomed everywhere else. The only place I was treated with kindness and humanity, and, and I, was, I was placed in a children's home was Italy. If it wasn't for my brother, I would be, I would be speaking Italian now. 
So, I mean, people have all sorts of reason. I mean, you know, people have all sorts of reason, which is fine. And not everyone wants to come here. So, at the, at the peak of the refugee crisis in 2015, about a million people entered Europe. Only about 10,000 were, uh, were in Calais, in the jungle, who wanted to come here. That's a very small number. And even now, there's about, you know, two, 3,000 people stranded in Calais who wants to come to the UK. And there are thousands across Europe. Greece has taken more asylum applications than us. Uh, Sweden has given more refugee status. And, you know, even Spain, a lot of other countries in Europe has done a lot more than us than we we have we have we, we have a standing in the world i think britain really has been been letting down people and uh and it's standing so it's really sad this idea why why the uk i mean it's not that the uk is such an amazing place which might be but at the same time it's not that everyone wants to come here people are just misinformed mis like misled the media yeah. does a very good job to create fear and hatred and even now we have a brexit people will still be racist i was i was thinking okay when brexit happens racism and discrimination will end because you know there will be not many European coming here. There will be less foreigners and so on. But people is going to be racist, you know, no matter what. If you're a citizen, if you have, you know, legal rights to be here, if you come here through whatever means, people will still be mean to you, which is which doesn't make sense, to be honest. And, and you know what? You're making a very valid point because um, I do feel like the whole uh, Brexit shift, um, how the media portrayed it, you know, for the Brexit to happen. Um, and you're right. The biggest concern is, when it does happen, what does that mean for people that aren't from here, but actually are? You know, you've been here mm -hmm. for many years. We've been here for many years. Um, and back to the point of UK. So for for me and Hesam, you know, we had no choice. We were told, um, and I and I love the fact you've got um, you know factual quotes, uh, Gowali, because what I've seen on social media that isn't covered. They assume mm. there are a lot of people coming into UK, but um, I'm glad you've got that. And I think we've got some we've got some um, data which we'll come on to shortly, uh, just to raise awareness for people who'll be listening to this down the line. For for those who don't know, for me and my brother again, you know, fellow refugee, we were told uh, at the beginning of our journey there are two places they can go that your older brother Hussein could actually get the medical treatment uh, that is needed that is needed and they they they're capable of doing and that was uk or us so that mm -hmm. was our sim simple two choices and obviously uk was closer from a um from geographical a perspective, perspective. Yeah, yeah exactly and i think there was a someone said that a quote you know um you you came in uh, and you know nhs etc we didn't know about nhs so all we knew was they can provide the medical we thought we're going to get to UK and like always, somehow we will, you know, work, get the money for my mm -hmm. brother to have the operation. And the bizarre thing is 2006, when we went to Southampton, the doctor said two places I could do his Fontan conversion operation, Chicago and Southampton. Amazing. And I think, uh, it, and he was the 21st person to ever have that operation. Um, so the complexity of the, of the operation and the fact we were told it was UK. Um, do you want to go? So we've got some other questions, Gowali. We want to run them through. Uh, yeah. But you're right. I think we've answered it very clearly when we say why UK. You had your personal valid reasons. We and also people, come, people we shouldn't reasons. question. I mean, the thing is, people seeking asylum, as I say, it's people. It's in the international law. It's in the Geneva Convention 1951 for a reason. And in this idea why people stay in the safe country, there's nothing in the international law which says you have to stay in the first safe country. You go wherever you want to go for whatever is your reason you want to go. That country has to take you in, has to determine whether you are, you know, uh, whether you're a refugee or not. 
in the UK, even though we have a very dehumanizing asylum system, it's still here. It still helps help some people. It might not, you know, people get about, you know, 60%, 70% Afghans get refusal. And sometimes when they go through the court system, uh, the justice system, and then they usually, you know, are the home officer, the one who makes the wrong decisions. And some people are, decisions are overturned. So when people come here, they go through a process. There's a procedure. Even though we may not like the process and procedure, it's there. As much as, you know, as much as it makes you, make, makes you feel unwanted and unwelcome, there is an international system in place. So this idea why people come here, why not? Why do we expect France and Italy and Germany and Sweden and, and Greece and other countries to take on people? And we are unwilling to, f to play our fair share. We are a wealthy country. And again, Britain, is, Britain has built its wealth and, 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 and empire and colonization. It had robbed India of its resources. And now Indian comes, they don't welcome them. And same with Africa and elsewhere. And also a fair point about how Britain has been involved in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria and Somalia and other yeah. places where there's been conflicts in Libya. Uh, they have been, you know, willing and happy to send troops and sell weapons to Saudi Arabia to bomb the Yemeni uh, people, but then they wouldn't take any Afghans or Yemenis or Syrians or Iraqis. I mean, that's like that's illogical. So you are militarily yeah. involved in places, but then you are unwilling to take in the refugees. How does that make sense? Yeah, and I think uh, the stats that Hamid was talking about. If you look at which countries' refugees come from UK throughout time, it's it's interesting that prior to two thousand eleven, there were no Syrians seeking asylum yeah. in the UK. So these are people are not coming here for for fun. They escape in their lives. Cause we see like in the map you can see a spike in Afghanistan during the early two thousand and then Iraq. And then if you, if you want to go back in the early nineties, Sri Lanka, people were coming from Sri Lanka, which uh -huh. might confuse people. So I think people need to realise that they are escaping a war zone. Yeah. So I think what that highlights, which again, um, we can we can somehow share it when we when we post this or put a link or something. What that highlights is exactly what Gowal is saying and what we talked about is is events around the world. So in our case, including the Gowali, there was an event in in Afghanistan in in you know year two thousand two thousand one that led people needing to flee. What that graph also shows, there was an event in 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 Syria in in X year that led for people to that see that increase so the question in 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 media and and audiences or people who listen to that and say you know why do we get you know afghans and and syrians and etc look at what caused yeah the, the cause of the, the problem that's the main thing because people are not talking about the cause they're talking about the consequences and again you know afghans used to be the largest refugee population in the world for a reason now we are the second largest and now i mean with the situation with venezuela people are fleeing in syria actually was an interesting example where there's Palestinians and Lebanese refugees in Syria for years. The Iraqis actually went to Syria. And now look, the Syrian, there's 12 million displaced people, about 8 million in the neighboring countries, only about 4 million refugees. Uh, and uh, outside, I mean, about 4 5 million refugees, about a million came to Europe, and the rest, uh, 3 4 million are in Turkey, in Jordan, and Lebanon. One in three people in Lebanon are Syrian refugees. And so, like, this argument doesn't stand about, you know, uh, we can't take them, they shouldn't come here. And we should do a lot more to support and help those countries who are hosting refugees. Um, you know, Ab Pakistan and Iran has been hosting Afghan refugees, but with, with very few rights. I mean, people sometimes forget, yes, they host us, but then they don't give us rights in terms of employment, in terms of education, in terms of citizenship and rights and so on. So that needs to change. There has to be, you know, an effort internationally by the UN. And people want to check out the facts and statistics. The UNHCR is a very good place. The yeah. um, help the the world, uh, what is it? The, the Human Rights Watch website, Amnesty International. A lot of organizations, you know, the Refugee Council have all the information there, the facts and figures to see 
where people are coming from and for what reason and how many we are taking and how many other people's are take, countries are taking. Germany is the only country in Europe uh, uh, which is in the top 10 of intake of refugee countries, hosting countries. Britain is 26. And so, like, you know, when, when people think that we less than 1% of our population are refugees. Yeah. I think people forget about the other countries, like you mentioned, Venezuela. People don't talk about the refugees escaping the South America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot more numbers compared to UK. Sure. Yeah. And I think, for, you know, for me, I think Gowali, um mentioned it very briefly is the actions and the consequences. So do we need to look at, I think I had a question in one of the uh, news outlets, uh, Gowali, they said, you know, so what would be your, what would be your, you know, your proposed solution? So let me, let me, let me pose the question to you, Gowali. If you, if you had the choice to uh, influence, you know, the decisions, what would you do in regards of not um, just refugees and, and welcoming them? Because obviously that's, that's something that we all stand for, but the potential root cause um, that is making people flee their countries. So basically, migration is not new. People have moved for centuries for all sorts of reasons, for education, knowledge, work, uh, for tourism, and so on. So now this new phenomenon of conflict and wars, I mean, it might have been happening in the past, but we didn't have social media and media to report on it. So my solution is we need to end conflicts. We had to find political settlements, like, you know, in places like Afghanistan. The war has not only been happening for the last 20 years, which has... You know, we had over 100,000 civilians dead in the last 20 years. This has been happening for the last 40 years since the Russian, the, the Soviet Union invasion yeah. uh, of Afghanistan. And the situation in Syria has come to an end. The Iraq instability, Libya and, and South Sudan, Eritrea, uh, places like Somalia and other places in the world that we had to pay our attention to and support. And we had to work around inequalities. And the world needs to really work on, you know, reducing inequalities and and, and poverty and, and deprivation because then people wouldn't have to flee and also we need to work around um, you know ending conflicts and injustice and oppressions and we need to support human rights because like what's happening in China look over a million or three million some says uh, Muslims are in concentration camp the situation with the Rohingyas why are, why is the international community not not putting more pressure and sanctions on Burma and Myanmar where over a million um, Rohingyas are forced to flee uh, to to neighboring Bangladesh and then Bangladesh get very little support as well. And then these people are stateless people. They nobody recognize them as citizens. Neither yeah. Burma, neither Bangladesh. They've been ethnically cleansed and, and they've been burned alive. The, the women and children have been raped. And the international community do very little uh, to support them in the situation. Look, we look at the situation in, you know, um, in Balochistan, the Baloch uh, people. We look at the situation in Kashmir. And also, we didn't mention Palestine. Palestinians are the largest refugee population in the world which not even, nobody really talks about them. They're not even counted as an official figure because there are more than, you know, seven, eight million of them who've been uh, refugees for generations in, in, in Lebanon, in Jordan, uh, in Iraq, and elsewhere, and in Egypt, in the, in the Middle East. So, like, there is there is this conflict and issue and we have to be realistic and find solution to it. And I would love for people to come to the UK and Europe legally and safely through to become, you know, I want the Afghans to come here to study. I want them to come here to work. I want them to come and visit. And the, the, the system needs to be fair. Like, for example, our Afghan passport, which I can't even use because I'm still a refugee, it enables me to go to 20, 25 countries without a visa, even yeah. though my geography is pretty good. I haven't even heard most of these names of these countries, small islands in the Caribbean and places, of, places in the middle of nowhere. And a British passport entitles you to go to 175 countries. So there's, there's certainly an, an, an inherent injustice in the global, in, global governance system. Things has to change. It needs to become more fair, more equal, more balanced. Uh, and so the only three countries in Asia who can come to the UK without a visa are Singapore, 
South Korea and Japan. And you know, if, if people want to come here through whatever means, through legal means and through getting visa, it's very yeah. tough, especially if you're from Africa, from poorer countries and from developing world. So that system needs to change uh, and you know, make it trust people. I mean, this mentality that all oh, people come here and they will not leave, that mentality needs to go away. Like, like a lot of people, for example, go to Japan and the Japan, the Japanese government mentality is not, oh, they will not leave again. People go do their business or whatever, visit and leave again. So we need to, we need to make it easy for people to travel uh, across borders uh, and mm-hmm. you know and save lives and, and do it in a in a civilized way. So I didn't I mean there is no one solution. There's a lot of combination of different factors, but we certainly had to find peace and security in the world. We had to bring bring an end to these conflicts. We had to end the regional and, and global rivalry between you know America and China and, and Russia and the U.S. and uh, here in Europe and the situations we have with, you know, Pakistan supporting insurgency in Afghanistan, the support Iran gives to different insurgent groups and all these kind of, you know, conflicts and, and, and regional rivalries and proxy war has to come to an end somehow. I don't know how, but it has to end. Otherwise, the refugee the refugee uh, influx will continue. People will, people will be forced to flee. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And it'd be, it'd be, a, it'd be a cycle because if, if you have you know conflicts and wars in let's say a, a new country middle east the first thing people are going to do for the safety is flee yeah um and you're right i i think i'm not even gonna i think a while put it beautifully to the to the question we posed um if there was one thing and again it would have to be one thing if there was one thing you want people to understand uh, in the uk about refugees um, what would it be? And I think what would be quite keen is I, I want each of us to give their perspective. Okay. So, Kuali, obviously you're the guest. Uh, you know, you're going first. first yeah. <laughs> yeah, so basically I think the thing I want people to understand is that we are human beings. Nobody leaves their home uh, out of a necessity. People leave for out of extraordinary circumstances. And no matter who they are, we should treat them with dignity and respect uh, and welcome them. And everything else comes secondary, like all the legal situations and status and everything else. We should show kindness. Otherwise, what kind of a human are we when we turn away, when we turn a blind eye to suffering and pain of other people? Like, I just want people in the UK to show solidarity, or at least, you know, at least, at least be compassionate. If they can't be, don't be mean, don't be miserable, don't be racist. That's um... that was a few things, but essentially, no. I do you know what? I love it. He took, he took, he took all of us. He, all he, the yeah, he us. took all the words we were going to say. So whatever we say is not going to be repeating uh, <laughs> what he said. Um, do you want to go? Do you want to go next? Um, yeah, I'll go next. For me, I just want um, people to understand there are stories behind everyone, mm-hmm. um, and knowing those stories can make us all understand each other a bit better. And I think if people heard more stories about refugees, so I think when both of you guys wrote a book about refugees, a lot of people who I know they never knew the story fully, mm-hmm. and they were amazed. So I think if people understand the stories, they have a better understanding of why they do all this and then it That's gives a very good them, point yeah everyone is an, indiv- them, an individual we shouldn't just yeah. brush everybody with the same brush yeah we all have stories yeah. and we all and, uh, and i think to we need cool. to speak Great up point. more as well as refugees because sometimes we're afraid to speak up so i, mm. I hope we're given the platform and then people listen to us as well excellent and and then last, Hamid. Oh God, you've, you've, you've taken all the good ones you've said so all now, the good ones so whatever i say it's going to be uh, it's not going to be that good no i I think the best way I can say you're right is there are relatability factors that people don't realize. So end of the day, I think while you mentioned that, mentioned, we're human beings. Yep. If a family, if our family had a choice to stay home 
and the, my brother didn't need the, you know, the medical assistance, we would have left home. If Gowali wasn't in a situation that he didn't need to leave um, for his safety, he wouldn't have left. He wouldn't have carried on the journey if he didn't know his, you know, his brother was on the other side. And that's the thing. People forget that uh, refugees are not making a luxury uh, journey, you know, catching a, you know, um, catching a little train, a 20 minutes with a cup of tea. They're actually life and death moments. You know, Gowali mentioned the container. We... We were in the container for a day and a half from France for to UK. My my biggest nightmare was seeing my family suffocate around me. And Hesam almost did that he threw up and we had to we had to poke a hole on the lining of the container to get some air in because he was just gonna pass out. And that's what people need to realise is refugees, the people. So let's not call them refugees. They're people in need that need to come to they're seeking safety. It's the last resort. Otherwise, why would you leave your home, your mum, your dad, your cousin? That's a family? very well put it. I mean, that's a very good point because ultimately we are people in refugees. It's there. It's, you know, people become, refugee means people who are seeking refuge, people who are seeking safety and they're not doing it out of, a, out of a no reason. They're doing it for a reason. I, you know, I haven't seen my family for the last 13 years. It's not something that I choose. I love, if I want to be anywhere, I want to be with my loved ones. Uh, for example, last this week, actually, my little brother got married and uh, put something on Twitter as well about it. And, and you know, I, there are so many occasions that I missed out of, out of on out of on that happens only once or once in a lifetime. You know, so I rather want to be part of it. Life is too short. And look, we saw with the global pandemic, we saw with COVID-19, you know, people were not seeing their loved ones for a few weeks. They were all upset and angry and frustrated. Look, imagine there are refugees who not only not, not only had to miss their families and their loved ones, but then had to face racism and discrimination, had to explain to people, why did you come to the UK? You know, you're not welcome. People don't want you here. All this, you know, talks of, you know, populism and hatred and fear and, and racism. It just, it's very upsetting. I mean, it hurts us. We are humans. We have feelings, you know. I try to be, I try not to read comments. I try not to read response to people, but it affects, you know, whether you like it or not, emotionally and mentally. So I ask people, please, you know, please be kind. Please be considerate. I mean, there may be something I don't like about this country or people, the, I will not actively get involved and you know be mean to people. I may not like something or someone, uh, mm -hmm. and that's the best policy. If you don't like us, after even hearing our stories and reading our books and understanding our struggles, please at least just don't be mean to us. Just be just be humane. Uh, and so if you you know if you know if you're not going to help us, don't harm us. Simple. No, I think you're making a valid point. And one thing before we go to a quick fire fire round i think we've called it which is a new thing we've got is you you mentioned COVID 19 and that's prompted something in my mind is people really struggle with a loved one um you know loved one passing away and they have you know 20 30 people go to funeral i've had my uh, uncle my dad's brother passing away back home and my, my dad couldn't go to my, my dad couldn't go to say goodbye but also be there for his burial and put into comparison in here when COVID-19 happened and people passed away, some people really struggled that they only had 20, 30 people for funeral. Well, imagine mm -hmm. you say goodbye to your, to your brother, like our dad did, mm -hmm. and can't go to the funeral. I think people need to put that into perspectives. Sorry. Just had to no, make that's that point. Good. So, I hope I hope it bring us. I hope this this COVID nineteen uh, pandemic makes us more humane and makes us more compassionate. Because now, as you were saying, it's now more relatable to think. Yes. But then again, like I was hopeful, but then now when I see the the news coverage and people's response on social media, you know, I lose faith. I lose hope. I mean, I become hopeless and helpless with 
even though it's a minority of people, but they have strong voices. They're like, oh, we, we don't care. And when we lose, when we lose sense of, you know, carelessness and, and concern for people, then I think we lost our humanity. I think, and this is why it's key. I think as Hessa mentioned, we, we as refugees, refugees speaking up more. So what you're doing is, is powerful and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a supporter. You know, me writing a book was more than uh, just, you know, my family, my brother's journey. It was just simply a story that people need to hear. But also, platform like this, uh, and hopefully um, other ones around us. Yeah, the speaking up and making awareness has got to be constant. Is a drumbeat that I feel like we have to constantly do, um, and more of us need to do. Yep. Um, t- take a take an example from from Kowali's page and lead it and be be that voice for me i guess the quote i've used be the voice for the voiceless we so try I'm hand it over to 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 hesam because he's got um quick fire round is if that's a such a thing we've just go invented. for it Hassan. it's just <laughs> um no it's just so we all talked about the comments so i just want to go through some of people's worries so i'm gonna play devil's advocate so okay. i'm gonna say the most comments i've seen is refugees just come here to seek benefit and take our jobs Okay, refugees are not allowed. So if you're an asylum seeker, you're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to get benefits. You have to live on five pound a day. It's about thirty-six pound a week. I don't know how you survive on thirty-six pound a week. I can challenge anyone who wants to wants to live on thirty-seven pound a week. There you go. Oh, there's, okay. there's, there can't be any quicker. Run. That's beautiful. Because <laughs> I remember when we when we came, they gave us um, vouchers. They there gave us vouchers. There was no cash. There was no cash. Only, you could only use so, at certain places. So people talk about uh, you're here to be on benefits. Well, you know, as Gowali said, with the figures. How can you? But also, I don't, and I don't know any refugees who take benefits. People wants to work, wants to have a dignified life, wants to pay taxes, want to contribute to society. A lot of my refugee friends are businessmen. They either have restaurants, takeaways, uh, car washes. They have uh, their accountants, their engineers, their business people, their scientists. I have my friends who are you know working in, in hospitals, who are doctors, who work in the NHS, who are like you, who are computer practitioners. I mean, you know, we're we're not here to sit down and be a burden on society. In fact, we create jobs and we contribute to the economy, perhaps more than some. People who are born here, who have got given right to be, and you know what, you're you're hundred percent right. So we pulled some stats. So twenty one percent of asylum seekers are self employed, versus fourteen mm-hmm. percent of uh, UK born uh, workers that are self employed. So you're right. More people from um, asylum seekers go on to create their own business, which will yeah, actually I mean, not, lead not to necess- more. I mean, yeah, of course. Once once they become refugees, because then, as I said, they were not allowed. You, if you're an asylum seeker, you're not allowed to work. Yes. Um, oh, this is post. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you become refugee, when you get your status, yeah. Okay. You, you guys do know you've just ruined my next four or five <laughs> Sorry, questions. Sorry, Hazan. By answering <laughs> all of them in one go. What was the next one? It was literally talking about uh, uh, the support to ec- economy and jobs, and then you guys just took it off. Yeah, sorry. But no... But this this quick fire round turned to be... One one question. One question, uh, go. <laughs> no, to be fair, we've we've been talking for... Uh, almost an hour and uh, Gowali I've 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 loved it the I love the fact there are relatability factors we're talking about and we're highlighting and I just once this is um out in the world I just love people to listen to it uh, and as you said we'll do another session a bit more details F- for us to let's say wrap it up um if if you had one golden nugget if that's the right way of saying it, mm. for people uh, about the topic that we've talked about. There are other topics that I'm sure we will talk down online. If there was one golden nugget that you want people to take away from um, from what's going on in the world uh, about refugees and what's been perceived, what would that be from your perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, like people talk about we are soft touch and we are, we know we can't have an open border and so on. People have all this argument which doesn't stand out. I mean, it's not true. It's it's not uh, it's not correct. So I would say let's you know let's treat people as people. Let's uh, realize how blessed we are in terms of security and peace in the UK. We have relative peace and security here, and let's share uh, the world with people. As I said, I, I explained in the lightless sky. I wasn't born in Europe. That wasn't my fault. So where you were born is an accident of birth, and we had to realize that sharing our privileges and sharing our opportunity does not make does not take away uh, you know does not make it less for us in fact as, as we were discussing refugees can provide opportunities themselves and could contribute to society we should not just welcome people because they contribute we should welcome them because it's the right thing to do uh, and people will continue to come unless you know unless there's peace in the world and i would i would love for the world i don't i'm not an idealistic i'm a realistic person i know we can't take everybody but we should take our fair share and you know stand up for what's right in a and as I said, as a human being, we have the capabilities and ability to touch people's lives. Let's touch it in a positive way. Let's live a positive legacy. Let's live a, an impactful uh, future. Beautifully put. Um, I think for me, I don't know how else I can top what you Gowali said. No, I think yeah, just uh, people go read, go read the boy with two hearts and read the lightless sky for more. <laughs> that's that's literally what I was gonna say. I was gonna say for those who don't know, just go buy the lightless sky at Amazon. Um, and the boy with two hearts. Yeah, uh, see, I gave you both plugs. No, no, no. <laughs> I think it's not the plug. You're right because for me, um, those stories are the, the, I guess, the much more expanded details. Our inner thoughts, our inner feelings, our inner emotions on why we left home, the journey we took, and you know why we had to make those hard decisions. Yep. And I'm not even going to try and you know wrap it up because I think Gowal has done it beautifully. But for me is hear the stories let's talk about let's talk about it rather than having misconception because yeah talk to us we... rather than talking behind our backs like ask us questions you know exactly treat us as, I... as, as, as equal partners treat us as, as a fellow human being because people talk right stuff on social media talk behind our back let's let's have a conversation and a human level. and you're right i totally agree i rather people ask their awkward and um misconception questions than make assumptions so for us that's how I want us to wrap it up. I think for me, uh, Gowali, thank you so much for being a guest. I'm sure this won't be the last time you'll be uh, in our podcast. Thank um, you, my brother. I think without, any, without much more to say, thank you. And please join us again on our next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Three Musketeers, hosted by Hamid and Hissam Amiri. Don't forget to share and follow. As more thought-provoking episodes with guests around the world will be appearing soon. See you soon.